You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in Matthew 5 today, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Um, If you are going to read in the Bibles under your seats, it's page 759. So I'll give you a second to turn there. We are in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. All right. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, the, for righteousness', righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for um, the sun shining and our ability to be here, Lord. Um, God, we just praise you so much for this place. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately that it is shocking that we get to meet in a school in Lawrence, Um, and we praise you for that, and we praise you for this space, Um, and we just pray for Central, Lord, Central Middle School. We lift it up. We pray that this space would be filled with your spirit. God, we pray that um, your church would continue to be encouraged to move here, to share your gospel here, whether that is staff, students, families, um, us on Sundays, Lord. We pray that this would be a place of light, that your light would shine in darkness here in this school, Lord. And we pray just for relief and safety um, over students and staff here that you would just continue to bless them, that this would be a good place of learning, that you would be with teachers and faculty um, because the world is hard and school is hard, Lord, and we're thankful we get to lean to you. We pray this morning um, for the sermon. God, I pray that we, uh, as a church, you would soften our hearts, that you would open our hearts and our minds to your words, your truth, that you would convict us. um, And God, that we would celebrate your victory as we sang this morning. You have won the victory, and God, I pray that we would be able to rest in that this morning and that we would be open to celebrating your victory far above all the football victories that we get to celebrate this weekend, Lord. We love you, and in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Well, good morning. Man, uh, the Jayhawks are playing football, 3-0. That's so funny. Um, I have a neighbor who, um, as long as we've lived in town, uh, he's around the corner from us, and he, he has this sign that he puts out every year. I haven't seen it this year, though, so maybe he's, he's beginning to believe. It says uh, in big letters, bring back our coach, and it says Mangino. <laughs> 
And we were walking the other day through the neighborhood, and, and uh, his name's Theo. And, and I was like, hey, man, you ready to get rid of the sign yet? And he was like, well, we got to get four wins before I'm uh, rested. So that's so funny. Um, what a fun time, though. Yeah, right? That's fun. It's fun to not just be a basketball school. Anyway, <laughs> enough about sports. My name's Ethan Spurley. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's, it's really good to have you this morning. If you're a guest with us, um, welcome. If you're here on the regular, welcome back. Uh, man, as a church, we exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what this means. Like, we, we think the greatest news in the world is the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to forgive sin to defeat death and hell and to restore us to the life we were made to live, that we were made to live. Restore us. It's about restoration. And here's what it's actually about. Like that we would look away from the ways that we naturally live, and as we get to know Jesus, we would see the ways we were intended to live. And here's what this has to do with. Happiness. Right? It's, it's more than that, but happiness Happiness. When I say the word happiness, what comes to mind? Like in this very room, I would expect there's about a million different lived in pursuits of happiness for each person present. Like whether or not you think about it as clearly as that is one thing, but I would wager that all of us to some degree live by the tune of I'm on the pursuit of happiness. I'll be fine once I get it. Yeah, then I'll be good. You know, after all, the pursuit of happiness is one of the unalienable rights that make up the fabric of our society, among which are life and liberty. You see, all of us, all of us live, work, set goals, and pursue goals because we ultimately want to be happy people. We resolve for a different kind of life than we presently live. We have ambitions in life. Ambitions to be somewhere like maybe just beyond where we currently are. Ambitions, and, and actually, you know, we could think about ambitions as negative things, but not all ambitions are bad. Like as Christians, it's, it's a wonderful thing that you would be ambitious because you're made in the image of the God who is absolutely ambitious. But here's the thing. When you think about your ambitions, when you've accomplished your ambitions, when they've been attained, when you set goals, actually meet them, what happens? What do you feel? How do you kind of feel inwardly? In this past year's Winter Olympics, uh, a woman by the name of Anna Shcherbakova, she's a Russian figure skater, she took home the gold medal in Beijing. And after winning, she was interviewed and they said, how do you feel, right? This is the question. This is the Disney World question. Well, she's not talking about Disney World, but here's what she said. She said, it's really hard to tell. I have mixed feelings. I was very happy to be in the right time in the right place. This is what I've been working toward every day. I still can't comprehend what happened. You can understand the exasperation of where she is. But then she said this, but on one hand, I feel this emptiness inside. An Olympic athlete striving for the world's biggest stage and actually winning on the world's biggest stage. She accomplished her dreams, her greatest pursuit, and was still left empty inside. And let's bring this even closer to home. I regularly have conversations with KU students 
like those who are in process and post-college professionals that cite disappointment once they've completed all their requirements and secured their dream job. Scenarios where they've earned degrees, they've pursued internships and programs and, and so on. Like goals, ambitions, life plans. Not goals that you like pursue and you fail, you drop the ball. Goals that have been pursued and accomplished and still left unhappy. Which means we're not only unhappy, but perhaps we ought to inquire, do we even know how to be happy? Today, we kick off the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, in this sermon, Jesus invites us into a vision of life that God has purposed. A vision of the blessed life or the happy life, depending on your Bible translation. What he's conveying to us is actually the life of fullness, the life of flourishing. And here's the thing. I think Jesus knows what it's like to be happy. Right? He, he of course, knows. Like, true happiness. Christ, of course, knows. And here in Matthew 5, he invites us into this life of true happiness. But how does he intend that we achieve this happy life or, or this blessedness? What's his point? What does he prescribe? Does he say, well, follow your instincts? Does he say, hey, just live your truth? Get better goals or ambitions. Hey, actually, you should be more self-confident. You need more self-love. That's going to make you happy. No, that's not his point. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking. He's conveying to us an overarching picture of his vision of life, a vision that if you don't possess all your ambitions and goals will seem empty in the end. Your goals, desires, ambitions in and of themselves, they will never bring happiness. And this is what I want us to take away today. Any goals, any ambitions, any visions of life apart from Jesus' vision will always, always leave you hopeless. Any vision of life, any goals, any ambitions apart from Jesus' vision will always be thin and frail. So here we have this somewhat strange passage, Matthew 5. It's strange because Jesus is describing a life that seems kind of different, kind of counterintuitive to what we think about when we think about happiness. We think about happiness in regard to the satisfaction of desires working out, like a situational contentment. But here's the thing, Jesus, he doesn't necessarily disagree with that. It's just that he casts a bigger and better vision for us than that. He gives us more than what we naturally go for. Jesus is actually imparting to us a vision for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as it says in this text. And as we preach through this, what we'll understand is the kingdom, is the, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that he has brought, a kingdom that is here, it's established, but one that's also to come. The kingdom is both the already and the not yet. So you, you may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, or at least some parts. But I want to invite you as we preach through this sermon in the following weeks and today to think about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Today we're just in the Beatitudes, but as we go and get through Matthew 7, think about it as a whole. You may think about just the, today, like the Beatitudes are parts where Jesus talks about prayer, where he talks about fasting. He's going to talk about anger and marriage. And when we come to familiar texts, we, we often take like, certain parts, we pull them out of the hole, and we miss the entire driving direction. And there's a surprising direction to it. In verse 2 of chapter 5, Matthew says this. He says that Jesus, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, 
Why didn't Matthew just say, and Jesus said? It seems that Matthew kind of painstakingly takes note to mention how Jesus is talking. He says in three different ways, and here's why. Right before Matthew 5, in chapter 4, at the end of it, we see Jesus. We see he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, and then he steps in, and in Matthew 4, 23 and 25, it says, he went all throughout Galilee. He went teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and here's what he was doing. Healing every disease and every affliction among the peoples. And as people heard about him, they started to bring everyone. Everyone started flocking to Jesus. The sick, those afflicted, those with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. He healed them. Jesus has spent much time doing physical healing, but here Matthew signals to us, Jesus is going to do a different kind of healing. He's going to do heart healing. And here's the thing. I would bet each of you has some kind of vision for happiness, a vision for the life of fullness, flourishing, wholeness, the good life, whatever you want to call it. And my desire, and I actually believe Jesus' intent in this today, is for us to be a bit humble, to take a risk and listen to what he has to say to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And further, that we would not just hear his words, but we would respond and actually reorient our lives around his words. And if you would do so, I really don't think you'll ever regret it. I don't think you'll ever regret it. But truly, this is the opportunity for us today, the invitation to fold on our ways, to surrender, to listen to the king, to live as a kingdom people, because the kingdom has come. The king brought it. He's inaugurated the kingdom. And so we begin the Sermon on the Mount, but we need to begin by clarifying something that's not necessarily easily understood. It talks about this word blessed. It's kind of a peculiar word, right? When reading the text, you may initially interpret verses 1 through 12 to say that if you live in a certain way, then you will be blessed. This kind of contractual agreement of sorts. If you're meek, you receive certain things. The house you want, the family you want, the job you strive for, gifts from God, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus talks about blessedness, he's not talking about blessedness of things. He's talking about the blessedness of life. He's talking about the completeness to living, to living rightly ordered to God in the manner that God designed. He's laying out the vision of the life of true and full flourishing, a life where we would experience Jesus' words in John 10.10. Jesus gives a warning. He says, hey, the, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but then he gives this great promise. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Blessedness is the kind of life that, when, that comes when you live with God in covenantal relationship and trust. The blessed life comes to you when you know God. Knowing God is the blessed life. The way to living in fullness, in wholeness, to be free and full, it's the abundant life. We could describe this in tons of ways, but for simplicity of today, it's the life of true happiness. Truly happy are the poor in spirit. Truly happy are those who mourn. Truly happy are the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. There's a fullness of life that Jesus intends for us. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he points to eight ways to be blessed. They can kind of be divided up into three parts. Y'all like a three-part sermon, right? Y'all love that, I know. But here's how we'll break this down. 
we'll look at first the Beatitudes of lack. This is verses 3 through 6, where we're talking about neediness. Then we'll see the Beatitudes of fullness, mercy, and purity, and peacemaking in verses 7 through 9. And then it's not the Beatitudes, plural, it's just the Beatitude of joy. Rejoice because you're being persecuted. We'll get to that. That's confusing. So Jesus begins with the Beatitudes of lack. Look at verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this seems a bit confusing right out of the gate. We'd expect if Jesus is going to give a sermon on happiness or blessing, you think he'd say, hey, blessed are those who are fully happy, those who are fully alive, those who are rich, something else. But instead he begins with a statement of those who are in poverty of spirit. It seems a bit backward way to start. You want to get the hook in people when you preach a sermon and Jesus, it feels like he misses the mark, but he's the ultimate preacher, so we got to follow him. Here, Jesus pulls back the veil, and he says, hey, the way of happiness, it starts here, poor in spirit. And isn't this antithetical to the world? Like, culture says that happiness begins by thinking about yourself. You've got a fullness that's within you, and it just needs to be drawn out, right? Follow your desires, and you'll be happy all the desires and resources to attain happiness, they exist within you. You can find them within. And Jesus says, hey, if you really want to be happy, like truly happy, you need to grow out of that mentality. You need to come to the end of yourself. Poor in spirit is the awareness that you have no resources. It's the awareness that because of sin, you're separated from God. It's the realization of the bad news. That because of sin, we're hopeless and without God. Poor in spirit refers to our spiritual poverty. We have absolutely nothing to offer God. And he would be absolutely, completely justified to leave us there. It's understanding we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. And the preacher of this sermon is the savior. Jesus is telling us the place of surrender is where true happiness and satisfaction is found because it's where he is found. This is how Jesus kicks things off, and this is surprising. It's kind of confusing. Like, we can't miss this part. Jesus begins by helping us understand the key to the living as kingdom people. He says we've got to recognize the king. Brothers and sisters, many of you are spiritually frustrated in life. Because you're trying to follow Jesus without beginning here. Jesus flips our understanding of happiness, of the blessedness on its head. It's not through successes, accomplishments, not even through spiritual successes. Think of it this way. Jesus is saying, hey, you could set out on a goal to read your Bible every day. To fast and to give and to pray and succeed in it. But if you don't come with a poverty of spirit, you won't find happiness. You won't experience the abundant life that God intends for you. You won't be truly happy. And isn't this surprising? It's unexpected. Happiness begins in the place of neediness, of scarcity, of emptiness and longing. And it's there that Jesus begins to make us truly happy, not through resisting our neediness, but through pressing into it, paying attention to it. And this is of utmost importance because Jesus is teaching us what it means to be satisfied deeply. You see where he's going here? 
Like, we got to understand his direction because this shapes the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to build from here and paint the picture of his kingdom. This would have been heard in stark contradiction, actually, to the way that the Pharisees were living their lives. And as the self-righteous, think about the self-righteous versus those who are poor in spirit. He's not saying, blessed are the morally strong or those who are equipped or remarkable. He's saying, blessed are the weak. And this is the entry point of life with Christ. Those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who finally and fully grasp their weakness, their spiritual bankruptcy. What we need to tune in here is that as Jesus opens his mouth and begins to teach, he's laying before us and inviting us into the life of grace. It's the beginning of life with Jesus. It's grace. But grace is to be received by weak people conscious of their neediness in spirit. Is that you today? Here's what I want you to see. As we progress in future weeks through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will give some pretty demanding commands. Like, and you need to hear them not as, uh, not as he's saying and, and you're saying, hey, yeah, I got this. I can work pretty hard and prove how impressive I am. Instead, when you hear where he's going with this, you ought to think, you ought to feel your poverty and just say, Lord, I, I can't. Would you help me? I have need. It's there that we bring our inability to Jesus. And he provides his spirit and presence and grants us not a life to measure up to, but a life to live into. From there, we begin to realize that any victory in life, any joy, any success will only come from him. And when we realize this, it moves us to worship. We realize that living a life of happiness is not the end goal, but worshiping Jesus and glorifying Jesus is. And with that in mind, the Beatitudes of lack begin to make sense. Look at verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Do you know that sadness can be present in a life of happiness? Some of y'all trying to run from sadness, right? You need to watch inside out. Sadness has its place. In other places in Scripture, we're called to, to a godly grief over sin, like called to lament when we see injustice, death, poverty, and pain, when the world, when we realize it's not as it should be. Christian lament and grief invite God into our pain as we ask for healing and renewal, him to make us whole. Friends, as you look at the brokenness of the world around you and you lament the way that things are, as you look at the brokenness within your own life and you realize, I'm not as I ought to be, Jesus wants you to lead. He wants to lead you to say, only God is my hope. Only God can save me. Only he can help. Those who mourn, Jesus says, are comforted because they know where true comfort is found. And Jesus promises us, that things will not always be as they are. And in verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, those who are humble, those who are gentle in attitude, those who have grasped the poverty of heart. They don't have a demanding spirit, but as we've seen, an emptiness of self. Sinclair Ferguson defines meekness this way. He says, Humble strength that belongs to the man who has learned to submit to difficulties. Difficult experiences and difficult people. <laughs> Think about that. Knowing that in everything, God is working for his good. 
The one who is meek stands before God's judgment, renounces their supposed rights. The meek one throws themselves upon the Savior and says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in turn, the meek one is gentle with sinners. Isn't this antithetical to the world as we know it? Like, God promised from the beginning that he would establish for himself a people and he would grant them a land. This promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The meek are those who submit to God, who know that they have no enduring city here and they look forward to the new Jerusalem. He then says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not blessed for like a possessed righteousness, one that they already have. It's those who long for, who starve for, who are needy for it. Happiness comes to those who are willing to be honest and say, hey, I don't have it in me to produce a good or righteous life, but I want it. They hunger and long, they're starved for, they live the life of dependence. Jesus says those who hunger and long for righteousness will be satisfied. The Sermon on the Mount, it's not a celebration of the highly esteemed or the self-confident. It's a celebration of neediness. It's painting a vision for the kingdom, and the kingdom is dependent upon the king. I want to say this clearly. Like, we need to know this as a church family. It's okay for you to be really weak and needy. It's okay for you to come to God and absolutely fall apart. It's actually the prescription. Like, if we were ever to enter into this blessed, truly happy, flourishing life, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It all begins here. There's two sides of the coin. The first word of the Sermon on the Mount is grace. It's this invitation. But at the same time, the other side, is that you must embrace your inability to find happiness, your absolute spiritual neediness. And honestly, this is really hard. Some of you might in this very moment be resisting it. Like you might think, man, that sounds like a life of weakness, and I've worked actually really hard to become strong in this life. I want to give you the warning that Jesus provides in the Sermon on the Mount. If you cannot embrace your lack if you cannot let go of yourself, you will never, never be truly happy and you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Have you started here? Are you empty-handed? Have you surrendered your rights? Or are you still clinging hard to that which you obtain, your own view of the good life, the beatitudes of lack? poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is the beginning. It's the foundation. And from here, Jesus builds and he moves on to the Beatitudes of fullness. And here's what we need to see. I think many of us in, in this church, many of us in this room, long to see what Jesus prescribes in the Beatitudes, right? Like we, we actually want to see this thing. We long to see fruit of ministry. We long to be filled with joy, but fullness of life and and true happiness will only come if we put off a, a performative spirituality. Here's what I mean. Like, if we put off 
propping ourselves up, beating our chest, and actually come to God empty. We come to God empty, and he comes in fullness. And, and wouldn't you long for that? I hope you long for that. Like, hear me out. If we think like this, if you serve in our church, if you work with kids ministry on the regular, if you're a city group leader, if you're any kind of team member, if, if you're in the band, uh, you're a greeter, if you just know Jesus and you come in this place week to week, I, I want you, I want to call you to this. Aim to be poor in spirit. Aim to be poor in spirit. Don't perform your spirituality here. Like if you do, Weak people who realize their weakness, they will never feel safe or welcome in this place. We say this all the time. Like, in a few weeks, we've got a membership class called Discover Free City, and you'll hear it there. But we talk about how we want to create a culture of vulnerability within our church. In effort to ring that kind of generic bell, it's like where it's okay to not be okay, right? Don't perform your spirituality here. Weak people will not feel safe. People who truly need Jesus will not feel safe, and you'll be deceived. If you're a leader, if you know Jesus at all, reach for poor in spirit. Boast in your weakness. Boast in your neediness, in your emptiness, hunger and thirst. This is why Christians fast. We'll talk about this in a few weeks, but we don't fast to make ourselves hungry. We fast because we are hungry, Right? We fast because we're aware of our neediness and we want to get to the deepest root of our soul's longing to be filled with the fullness of Jesus. We're not good at hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're pretty settled in hungering and thirsting for everything else. I'm afraid that we're actually good at wanting, but completely disconnected from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But here's where fullness comes. We come empty and Jesus comes and satisfies. He grants us mercy and purity and peace. He comes and brings his fullness. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We were poor. And Jesus brought us the experience of mercy. Mercy that's beyond anything we could ever communicate or comprehend. We were dead, hopeless, destined and deserving of nothing but hell. But God made us alive in Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God through Jesus. We had nothing. We gained everything. And so insofar as we became empty and needy for mercy, we experienced the fullness of mercy in Jesus. And here's the thing. Those who have experienced the mercy of God, they give it away. We're a missional people, right? Jesus commissions us. He sends us out. So we don't just receive mercy and then stockpile it up. We become a people rich in mercy because our God is rich in mercy. And then Jesus goes on in verse 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a key to the whole thing in the middle of the sermon. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Soren Kierkegaard said that. Purity of heart is to... We could say desire one thing. Someone who's come empty and received fullness in Christ understands where fullness is derived. And now it's their single-minded desire for more. It's that Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Purity in heart is someone who says, I know where fullness comes from. It's not just someone who says, I know the right and holy things to do, and so then they do them. Pure in heart is talking about someone who's experienced fullness in Christ, wants it more and more, and in an effort to get it more, sees things in their life that distracts them from keeping or keeps them from fullness. And as they identify these distractions, they, they throw them away. They put them off. It's that Hebrews 12 Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. The single-minded, pure in heart, run to Jesus. The pure in heart, consider how they consume things in life, like how they spend their money or their time, how they consume media. Habits that keep us from joyful fullness of God. They consider the distractions of life. What are things in your life that give you a false sense of self-reliance where you never go to God? What are the things that distract you or keep you from going to Jesus for fullness? Would you be willing to let them go? Would you be willing to consider letting go of those things, fixing your eyes on Jesus? If you will, it'll be hard. It might be painful, but I promise you will never, never regret it. Blessed are the single-minded, the single-hearted, those who understand where fullness comes from, and they get everything else out of the way. The pure in heart are those who are passionately in love with God, who has first loved them. They're irresistibly drawn to the one who's demonstrated his great love in sending his son, Jesus, to save them, and to fulfill his promises. Because Jesus has made you pure in heart. You come in confidence, knowing you will see God, and you live the life purely focused on him. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. (laughs) If you're into the Enneagram, this is not just for you, those of you that identify as a number 9. If you don't know what I mean, don't worry about it or waste your time. But it says, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the conflict avoidant. Another way to consider this might be to just consider blessed are the the whole makers. And here's what I mean. I don't mean whole, whole, wholeness. As a circle becomes whole when it's enclosed, it's this kind of, this idea of shalom, if you will. Not simply people who were enemies now made friends. It's, it is that, but it's more. It's like being sick and wounded and separated and then being mended and put back together, made whole, healed. The peacemakers are those who bring things together. You came to God empty. You came needy and he made you whole. In Jesus, you experience fullness, not apart from him, not in something else, not in someone else, not in self, only in Christ, as we have experienced wholeness in life in Jesus, then we become agents of wholeness, agents of peacemaking. And this is precisely what the church is. Like, this is our job as a body. First Peter 2, 9, it says, hey, we're a, a chosen, a holy people set apart. And what do we do? We proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. 
Once we had not received mercy, but now we've, been, we've received mercy. We have peace with God. We've been made whole. And we, with the living spirit of God and dwelling within us, become agents of peacemaking. This is how we have a sustained care for our city, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our family members, classmates, and beyond. We see injustice. We see division. We see a lost world. And we step to it. Because we are the very hands and feet of Jesus. And we proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, so that others might find peace with God in Christ. In Jesus, we've received the fullness of life, grace upon grace. So we have the beatitudes of lack. And then we have the beatitudes of fullness, mercy and purity and peacemaking. And then we end with the beatitude of joy. And this presents a bit of a difficulty. It kind of seems to say that blessed are those who suffer and are harmed, which seems contradictory. That doesn't feel like the life of blessing. But look at verses 10 and 11. We'll take them together. Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's saying, blessed are you who are hurt for wanting and doing the right things. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means you're in alignment with God's justice and mercy, which also means you'll be aligned with a way of life that resists the way the world thinks of fullness and happiness in regard to comfort and control. Approval, power is more important than righteousness. And Jesus says, you will be persecuted. Friends, if you follow Jesus, if the world will feel threatened by your presence, have you spoken up lately? I don't mean like gone with the grain. I mean wrestled with what God intends for humanity versus what surrounding culture thinks and prescribes for humanity. Like take a look outside. If you don't go along with popular culture, if you resist the ideologies of this moment, you will suffer. Ask any person in history who's tried to live for righteousness or justice for Christ's sake, you will suffer. Not only will you suffer for doing right, though, you will be hurt for Christ's sake you will be alienated, made to be a fool for identifying with Jesus. It's this awkward part of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus has said, here's the life of true happiness, of flourishing, and part of it includes being harmed, being hurt, discounted, maligned, hated, and mistreated. It comes with conflict because it's not the way that the world is shaped. We experience conflict in our own hearts because we don't naturally want to live this way. And conflict in the world because the world doesn't want to live this way. It's worth noting a couple things. When speaking about persecution, when Jesus says you will be persecuted, he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness or for my sake. Here's what he does not say. He does not say, blessed are you when you lack wisdom and enter into foolish situations and call it persecution. We'll soon be headed into the Christmas season. 
and here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to go to Starbucks, and they're going to give you a Christmas-themed cup, and it's not going to have a cross or a manger on it. And uh, they're going to say, happy holidays. Friends, this is not persecution. <laughs> I realize your grandmother or aunt on Facebook has been oppressed for years because of this. But that's not persecution. Secondly, and listen to me in this, seriously, I, I really mean this. If you don't feel any resistance in your life, then you need to consider, are you aligned with God or with the world? The lack of persecution in your life might mean that you're on your own pursuit of damnable happiness. Jesus says, if you align with me, if you follow me, you will be hurt and harmed. You'll be alone and alienated, but I will be there and you will still be happy. You will still be blessed. And isn't this an echo of Matthew 1? It's where we started in the gospel. Matthew cites Isaiah, and in verse 23 of Matthew 1, he says, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this is the whole point of Matthew's gospel. The king is here to bring the kingdom. He's not a far-off king. He's not, he's not one who uh, made things and went away, but he's one who draws us to God and who is himself with us, Emmanuel. What Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is that costly, Jesus-centered living is true happiness. Do you believe him? I wonder if you believe him. You see, living this way actually will sustain you in feeling your emptiness, your spiritual bankruptcy. You, you will never feel self-sufficient. Like, ask anyone who has been following Jesus for a while and, and, like, growing in him. They will constantly cite that they feel needy and empty. And this is exactly how Jesus wants to lead us. Because he says, when, when your, my power is made perfect in you when you're weak. The problem is we want to be strong. We want to be competent. We want to be known for having it all together, right? I know I do. But Jesus speaks gently. And he says, hey, true happiness, it doesn't come that way. He says, let, let me teach you a better way. Let, let me satisfy you. Come with me. Take my burden upon you. Learn from me. Watch me. Walk with me. Here's the deal. You need to know this. Jesus tells us here, if you align your life with him, you'll most likely have scars. But it's there in your suffering that you will be most competent and fruitful in healing. It's only when you begin to see your scars and own them that you will then be agents of peacemaking. And here's why. We come empty to Jesus Nothing in our hands, and here he comes filling us. You know why? Because he has scars. 
Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he came down, became weak, he emptied himself at the cross, he bled and died, he has and bears scars himself. And friends, listen to me, it's only a God who has scars who can heal us who have scars. And it's only those of us who have scars who can utilize the power of God to help others who have scars. I want you to hear this. I don't say it in a heartless or trite way. God will allow a woundedness, a kind of weakness that's meant to remind you of your spiritual depravity, of your emptiness, your lack. God will allow a kind of injury, a kind of hurt, so that your self-reliance and your self-confidence will collapse. So that in the end, it's actually his mercy that allows it. And it's at that point, like maybe for the very first time, that you begin to open your hands and surrender and you say, Lord, have your way. Maybe this is actually, Lord, what... what what it means to truly trust. Like, I thought I trusted you before, but, but wow, this is a whole new thing. This is what it means to truly trust Jesus. And from there, you begin to trust and pray with a longing, an urgency, a desperation, with more purpose than before, and that is when things get good in your life. It's where true happiness is found. That's when surprising things begin to happen. And that's where I want to be myself. That's where I want you guys to be. That's where your pastors want you to be as a church. Jesus ends by saying, considers all these things. And he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He sets our eyes on eternity because true happiness is found in him when we look longingly at his face, we don't depart it. We realize our need, our hopelessness. We find satisfaction in him. Pray with me. Jesus, would you satisfy us this morning? Would you allow our hearts to rejoice? When we think about the perplexing nature of the Beatitudes, we, we know that we know to varying degrees, but we resist it, that we're needy. We know our poverty of spiritual right standing. And so we confess that this morning. Jesus, we come to the table of communion saying, we have nothing we can bring. We fall and collapse on you. Cheer our souls, cheer our hearts, lead us. So Holy Spirit, would you direct us this morning? Would you lead us to behold Jesus more and more? In Jesus' name, amen.